0: As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Beauty will save the world. A talk by Father Dave Callahan. The talk this morning basically called Beauty will save the world. Um, how the Christian vision of love challenges the secular vision of identity. So, so last night we looked at some fairly heavy stuff. I hope you followed it all. Basically trying to paint a picture of what actually is this secular world we're in and how we as Christians have been colonised by that idea um, You know, to the point where when we're faced with the actual radical calling of Jesus Christ, even we re- react to that. We were like, ah, oh, this is meant to be about me, you know? And because really that was the whole idea of the secular world. It's, it's trying to get the kingdom without the king, as I mentioned, you know? So we're trying to gain a life of heaven, really, pleasure, joy, absolute fulfillment. But it's all on my terms. And, and it's all really focused on the now. Just to kind of open up a bit more of this, so... One of the key things about secularism is this whole sense around identity. So one of the key people who's written a lot about this is a guy by the name of Charles Taylor. Um, he wrote a, this massively epic book about a 1,000 pages long, um, basically explaining about how we get here currently in our modern world. I was listening to an interview with him and he basically says that this whole thing of identity is key. That if if you were to go back to the 1500s and you went up to an average person and you said, what is your identity? Who are you? They would give you a weird look and say, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? (laughs) You know, because for them, identity was kind of a given really, like it was purely about relationship. Like I am the son of my father. I am part of this village. I am, you know, one of these people in this, in this city. Um, your sense of identity was pretty much given to you. It was just assume that this is who you are. Whereas in our modern world, that question is everything. You know, pretty much every bit of advertising is, well, who are you? Who are you gonna make yourself into today? And a lot of our anxiety is driven by this sense of, well, who am I? I don't know who I am. I don't know whether what I am is good enough, whether what I am is valuable enough. And so we're almost thrown into this neurosis around identity now. Um, And this starts to become a little bit bizarre. Um, Not only does identity become kind of this point where I'm, I'm trying to claim my place on, on this planet. I'm trying to prove that I actually have some sort of value and worth. But when I start to realize that I'm just one of seven billion people, I now have to fight for something which makes me unique. So whereas before, I was quite happy being part of the collective, you know, like I'm quite happy being part of the nation and the, the village and the family. Now I've got to try and carve my own path so that I am valuable. I stand out from the herd. And so you kind of end up with with two key things. Firstly, the whole economic system is based around selling you the answer to that question. Everyone is trying to sell you your identity. And basically that's that's what every bit of marketing is. Um, It's trying to feed an anxiety and then give you the answer to the product, you know, by selling you a product. Um, I'm not sure that you quite realize that's the psychological dynamic. Um, we all think that we're being extremely unique and individual by choosing these products, but they're just playing us completely. They, they know exactly what they're doing. <laughs> um, they're, they're basically creating a problem and then coming in as the savior with the solution. you know. Uh, We we, we have created this anxiety so that you don't know who you are, but oh look, now we're going to sell you the answer. So that's, that's one of the key things that sets our world apart now. But the other side of this is where you also end up with this strange thing where I need to be valued, I need to be loved. And the only way that you can really be loved in this world is by being a victim. And so we've now got this strange thing where everyone is competing to be a bigger victim than everybody else. Um, yeah, they've, they've even got terms now, I think they call it um, intersectionality, I think is the term. So, where I now claim multiple victim identities, and I sort of stand at the, at, the, at the intersection between, you know, this victim group and this victim group and this victim group, and so now I'm valuable because You know, I'm like five different minorities at once. (laughs) Um, And that now becomes my brand. And this is the thing, it's all about branding. It's all about labeling. Um, You know, everyone needs to have some sort of label. Now you go back 10, 20 years, and this was all about fashion labels. Um, And then there was a whole reaction to the corporatization of labeling but we've now gone into ideologies as our labelling. It's it's exactly the same thing. It's still branding, um, but my brand now becomes you know the particular flag I'm under or you know the particular identity or group that I stand with. Fundamentally, it's it's the fact that we have lost all sense of identity, and we're now desperately trying to grab hold of anything we can. Um, it, it's very much a world which has lost the sense of family, and so we're now trying to find any group that is going to be that family, but at the same time also make us completely unique. Uh, So it's a kind of a bizarre world we're in at the moment. Now, what does that actually then do? It it ends up making a world which is much more polarised and much more angry. Um, there's, There's some interesting stuff being written about this that In a world which is desperately trying to create peace and unity and harmony, and we've got all these programs to like Stop Bullying and Stop Harassment, um, there are some people pointing out that the people throughout history who have done violence are the people who believe that they're the victims. And you can kind of go through every stage of history. Whoever has actually done extreme violence normally has planted themselves in the victim role. And I think that starts to make sense of our modern world, You know why there is so much aggression and hatred. It's because everyone believes that they're the victim and everyone else is the oppressor. And so they've got to fight and be angry and shut them down. And so you've got at the, at the core of it, there is this desire for peace and unity and harmony, but the actual fruit is the complete opposite. What we're actually getting is division and violence and hatred and polarisation. Um, and yet, all of it is being done in the name of love. Is <laughs> the weird thing, you know? Because we want to create a world of peace and harmony, we are going to destroy you uh, completely. You know, we, we we've we've virtually got a world where we've got like a new Inquisition hunting down anything which is deemed immoral or you know offensive in any way at all. So the question is, well, where do we find ourselves now as Christians in this place? I think the first thing is, like I said last night, to realize that we have been colonized by this idea. So we are also searching for our identity. We are just as much lost in the midst of this world. And even as Christians, we are trying to find some sort of branding which will help us to understand who we are. Um, You look at the church, and you see exactly the same polarization and infighting and competition. Um, But it's all very religious branding, you know? What type of Catholic are you? Are you a traditional Catholic? Are you a Marian Catholic? Are you a charismatic Catholic? Are you a Sunday Catholic? Um, And everyone is believing that they're the best and everyone else is the worst, or somehow they're the victim and everyone else is oppressing them. It's exactly the same dynamic going on. And I think, once again, we've just got to sit back and say, well, hang on, something's wrong here. Uh, we have missed the point. And potentially we've missed the gospel. We, we've failed to understand what Christianity actually is because we can so easily just use this, the, you know, the church setting, as another place which tries to answer my anxiety or my neurosis. Um, you know, even, even my spirituality can become part of that. You know, trying to just simply meet my anxiety. I'm not really in relationship with God at all. I'm just trying to make myself feel safe. That's that's our modern world. So this is where I think we need to come back and rediscover Christianity, as I said in the last talk. How do we come again to discover what really is this about? Now, this is really where the, the whole thing of love comes in. Real Christian love. The, the, the sort of Christian love which is going to sound a little bit confrontational. Um, because once again, we're in a world where everything becomes about us. So so we, even when I say you need to be loving, the reality is that when you hear that, you're thinking, How does this help me? <laughs> sure, I'm gonna go help, I'm gonna go and love the rest of the world, but it needs to be for me. You know, fundamentally it's about me. And, and this is where we need a bit of a reality check. St. Catherine of Siena is a good starting point for this. In part of her writing, she talks about the three types of love. And, and I always use this because I think it's a simple way to explain the contrast between them. So she says, the first type of love is a love based on fear. So you love someone because you're afraid of them. Now, this is sort of the, the love that a child has. You know, they, they obey their parents because they're afraid that they won't get ice cream if they do the wrong thing. Um, or they love their teacher because they know that they can get into a lot of trouble if they don't. Um, so it's always motivated by a fear of punishment. Now, we do the same thing with God as well. Um, pretty much the, the place where everyone starts in their relationship with God is a love based on fear. I love you because you might send me to hell. Um, she then says the second type of love is the most common, which is what she calls a mercenary love. So a mercenary is a, is a paid soldier. They don't, they don't care who they fight for as long as they get paid. And so she says this is where you love because of what you get. So there's, like, the only reason you're in there is because you're going to get something back. And this is the confrontational bit because she says, well, this is where most people are. This is the most common type of love, that I'm going to go and do good to you because you're going to say thank you and tell everyone that I'm a great person, um, or you're going to you're going to appreciate me. You're going to, there's going to be some sort of kickback, um, and and this this infiltrates everything, you know. So even even into marriage, you know, I'll love you as long as you love me back, you know, and and on the day that you stop loving me, then I'm going to go look elsewhere. Um, and so, so it's, it's a love which looks genuine, but it is actually quite shallow, or it's very self-focused. She then says the third type of love is real love. So this is where you love even when there is nothing coming back to you, or, or particularly you, you love even when you are hated for it, even when you're persecuted for it. And so she says, this is very rare, but, but this is actually what Christian love looks like. And, and until you manage to get to this point, you're not really loving as a Christian should love. Um, though the way that I often describe this is, um, you know, imagine that you are you know, a good Catholic. You know, there's an old lady down the road who's stuck at home with no one to care for her. And so you decide to do the good thing. Okay use you as an example, okay? Every day you go down there with a bowl of chicken soup and you're like, Mildred, I've made you some soup, okay? She's like, oh, bless you. I wish you were my son. You know, I wish all my grandchildren were like you, okay? And you walk away thinking, I'm such a good Christian. (laughs) And so every day you do this, okay? You care for Mildred and she pours out praise upon you and she, you know, puts a photo of you up on the mantelpiece and there's... (laughs) There's some serious kickback going on here, okay? Like this is feeding your ego, you're doing well. Um, But what happens if one day you go there and and you say, Mildred, I've bought you some soup. And she swears at you and says, put it down over there. Yesterday was cold, I hope it's warm. And then she picks up a shoe and throws it at you and says, do better tomorrow, okay? (laughs) What are you going to (laughs) do? Now maybe your charity goes far enough to come back tomorrow. And you come back tomorrow with some more soup. And she's already there holding a shoe ready to throw at you. Like, you know, better be better than yesterday. <laughs> and she starts abusing you, calling you all sorts of names. Like, you couldn't make soup to save yourself. Question is, how long are you going to persevere before you realise that there's probably a bunch of other old ladies in the suburb who need your help? Who are much nicer than Mildred. <laughs> I think most people would get to a point where they think this is not worth it, you know, like why am I doing this? I'm not getting anything back. I'm walking away feeling hurt and damaged by this. Um, I just can't cope with this. You know, Forget it. That's, that's probably the way most people in the world would, would respond. Um, I suppose the question is could you find it within yourself to persevere, to say no? I'm going to keep loving this woman, no matter how angry and resentful and bitter she is. And tomorrow, I'm not only going to bring some soup, but I'm going to bring some spare shoes for her. You know, know, maybe she just enjoys the target practice. Um, That would be real love. (laughs) Now, once again, when you hear that, just pay attention to what you feel about that. (laughs) You know, somewhere in, the, in, your, in your brain, you're probably thinking, yeah, that'd be wonderful. But deep down in your stomach, you're like, oh, no, <laughs> I couldn't do that. And I think it's important to pay attention to that feeling because that's where we realise that battle zone inside of us. You know, like I said last night, the, the point where the gospel clashes with culture, that, that we've grown up in a world where that would be, stupid and, you know, unnecessarily and reckless, and you would just never love a person who was abusive to you. Um, everything in us would say, run away, you know, don't do it. Um, and yet, really, that is the heart of Christianity, because the heart of Christianity is the cross, It's the fact that Jesus decides to love us at the very point when we are killing him. You know, that, that's, that's the bit that always strikes me. It's... Um, you know, when, when you look at the fact that as, as, as the soldiers are hammering the nails into the hands and feet of Jesus, the only thing that is keeping their hearts beating is him. He's God, okay? He's the one holding them in existence. If he stopped loving them at that moment, not only would they die, they would probably cease to exist. They would just vanish. Um And yet he is there just loving the people who are crucifying him. And now we we hold up the cross and we always say, this is the example of perfect love, but none of us particularly want to follow it. (laughs) Um, We love the concept, we love the idea, as long as somebody else does it. And and we'll celebrate the saints. We will celebrate those who went and did it, as long as we don't have to go and do it ourselves. There's a, if you ever get a chance to find it, there's a classic little short story. There's a French Catholic author, uh, George Bonanos, I'm probably pronouncing his surname completely incorrectly. He wrote a little thing called The, the Sermon of an Agnostic on the Feast of St. Thérèse de Lisieux. If you want to try and track that down somewhere. And basically what he imagines, he says, imagine if we invited an agnostic to come and preach to us on the Feast of St. Thérèse, what would he say? and he then writes his homily and it's it's actually brilliant it's um it's really quite cutting like it just tears christianity to shreds but in a good way <laughs> um but he's got this one little bit where he talks about how how we celebrate the saints and he's talking about saint francis of assisi how you know he says we all celebrate him we look at his example of love and he he says we're You you Christians, you're you're all a little bit like the the Italian soldiers who hunkered down in their in the trench, and as their captain jumps over the top of the trench with his sword and starts shouting Avanti, Avanti, you all keep your head down behind the trench with tears welling up in your eyes, clapping and applauding, saying, "Well done! (laughs) What a brilliant example of courage!" And he says, you've missed the point. You were meant to follow him. You're not there to applaud those who run off into battle, into you know, the hail of boats. You were meant to follow them. And that's where you've missed the point. And he goes on, he basically says, if, if you had followed the saint of Assisi, we would never have had all the wars that followed for the hundred years later. We would never have had all the bloodshed. You know, the problem was us. The problem was that Christians did not have the courage to love as Christ loved. We are happy to sit back as spectators, but we are terrified of ever actually stepping on the field and getting ourselves hurt. Because if you actually want to love the way Christ loved, you will get hurt, you will be crucified. But you will also then be resurrected. Okay, but I think this is the... This is the challenge, you know, we, we're too afraid of actually getting out on the field. You know, I was listening to this talk the other day where this guy was using that analogy. He said, if you look at Christianity, you've kind of got three groups. If you imagine, it's a, bit, a little bit like a football game. You've got the people who are watching at home. You've got the people who are in the grandstands. And you've got the people on the field. The people watching at home or those in the grandstands really don't matter. They are not going to influence the game at all. You can cheer as loudly as you want and really it's not going to do much. The only people who matter are the ones who are actually on the field, who are prepared to be in the battle. Now I think that's kind of the question for us, where are we? Are you at home, in the comfort of your lounge room, watching it on television? Are you in the grandstand cheering loudly, or are you actually getting bruised and battered on the field, fighting to make sure we win? Most of us would like to assume that we're on the field, but I think the reality is that most of us are actually just in the grandstand cheering. Um, we can be we can be the fans of Christ. You know, we can be the the spectators, the the supporters. Um, and, and I think this is a real danger where we can be so vocal about our faith, we can get into all the great discussions, particularly all the online discussions about what a Christian should look like or a Catholic should look like, but who is actually act out there in, in the mess getting their hands dirty? Um, and I think that's the real challenge of love. Like, like if we really want to start to transform this world, we need to be prepared to be hurt. We need to be prepared to actually get in there and, and actually get a little bit bruised by this. Um, so I think this is where, okay, having explained that, let's step back now and kind of explain what does Christian love look, really look like. Um, there is, the how to explain this? I think what we're trying to present here is that love is the heart of the mystery. If you can understand how love works, then you've come pretty close to understanding how God works because God is love. Okay, like like we're not talking about some soppy, sentimental feeling here. We're actually talking about an encounter with the divine. Now, this sort of brings us into this whole thing of the mystery of grace, Um, if I could try and explain this a bit. So... You'd be aware that throughout the Gospels, Jesus spends a lot of time arguing with the Pharisees. It feels like every, every five minutes, like again with the Pharisees, okay? Um, he's constantly arguing with them. Now, really what's happening there is there is a clash between two worldviews. The Pharisees are coming from this understanding of the law, which is really this understanding of rules and justice. Okay, so they understand that the world is broken. They understand the human heart is a devious thing. And they believe that the only way to control it is by setting up rules around ourselves, and then we enforce those rules with shame. So the only motivation to not break the rule is that you will be shamed badly. Either you or your family will be terribly ashamed because, oh, you did that. You know, we all know what her daughter did. Um... Now, that's pretty much how our world has worked. And sadly, that's often how our church has worked as well. That we hold everyone in check purely out of fear. Um, Fear of being found out, fear of being revealed, and then being shamed. What Jesus is doing is something radically different. And I, I suspect that after 2,000 years, the church still hasn't really understood it. Because what he's presenting here is this idea that love, and particularly a merciful, compassionate love, has the power to transform. And this is the key thing, because the law can stop me from doing the wrong thing, but it can't stop me from wanting to do the wrong thing. You know, so I may never have murdered someone, but I may have dreamt about it regularly. (laughs) I may never have committed adultery, and yet that could fill my mind every day. You know, so it, it can control the outward action, but it can't control the inward desire. Whereas what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to change the inside of the person. And so he loves people. And what you see is a compassionate love which seems to be, you know, complete completely dangerous almost. You know, so when when you've got someone like Zacchaeus, or the woman who's caught in adultery, and he just loves them and says, "Yeah, don't don't sin again. Off you go." And you can imagine everyone else around them is saying, "Hang on, what have you just done? <laughs> like, surely they need to learn a lesson. You know, surely there needs to be some sort of punishment or threat to make sure that they don't do it again." But what he's actually revealing there is that. Love itself has the ability to transform the human heart. And then we will never actually desire to sin again. You know, like it takes away the desire. Um, It's hard to try and explain this in a really summarised version. (laughs) We still do it justice. But really I think what it comes down to is the fact that every time you sin, basically you're looking for love. You know, They think of any time you've ever sinned. You got angry, you got jealous, you stole something. Pretty much, you could, you could trace that back to the fact that you were looking for something. You were looking for love. You got angry because you weren't appreciated. You got jealous because someone else was loved more than you. You stole something because you thought that would fill the emptiness in your heart, which was there because you weren't loved. Um, so basically what Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to go right to the, the crux of the problem. And fill that. And he, and he does it very much through mercy and compassion. And this is the bit we still don't get as Christians. We still don't understand it. There's, there's something about that unbelievable acceptance. To, to, have, to have someone reveal your deepest shame and then say, but I still love you. That is That is powerful. That is unbelievably transformative. You know, and I've heard this from married people, you know, where so often when people get married, they actually get married in their strength. They they come together in their perfection. And they can only hold that together for about five or six years. And then gradually it all starts to crumble. And they fail each other terribly. And that's the point where the marriage is, it could go either way, really. But if... If at the point where someone fails terribly or, or, or their real weakness is revealed and their spouse is able to look at them and say, you are horrible, you are an absolutely horrible person, you do not deserve to be loved at all, and yet I'm going to spend the rest of my life with you because I love you, that is extremely confronting. <laughs> um, because at that point you've suddenly entered into this mystery of grace. You don't deserve it. You've done nothing for it at all. Um, Everything from this point on is simply gratitude. Um, I can never pay back that debt. All I can do is every day just say thank you for it. Thank you, thank you. Um, It is probably the hardest thing that anyone can receive. You know, to actually receive that level of mercy Is extremely difficult. Because suddenly I lose all sense of control. You know, like if 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 I if I've got the ability to pay off the debt, then I'm still in control. Like even if I have to work for a million years to pay off the debt, I'm still an autonomous creature with one day I'll be free of that debt. But if I receive it as pure mercy, I'm forever in debt to the person. I'm forever under them, in a sense. Like I, I'm now dependent upon their mercy every day. And that's, that's the sort of place we don't like to be in. <laughs> um, that's basically where, where Jesus calls us into. You know, he calls us into a receiving of that, that level of mercy, that level of grace, where the only way I can respond is every day of now just saying thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, my whole life becomes an unending act of gratitude. That's, that's really the heart of consecrated life. Like whenever I'm teaching the novices that I'm training, I'm always trying to say, like, like, we're not here as a way of trying to prove ourselves to God. We're not here trying to do great things. Our life is just one big thank you for the cross. That's all it is. You know, we, we look at what he's done on the cross and we're like, how can I repay that? You know, the only way I can say thank you is by giving everything. That, that, that's the way we would understand it. You know, and so I think that's the way we need to understand the whole of the Christian journey. So I would always say, like if you want to understand Christianity, there's there's two sides to it. Firstly, you've got to be loved, and then you've got to become love. Most people fail in the second because they've never done the first. You know, we, we start off and we think, I'm a Christian, I'm gonna go out on a mission, I'm gonna save the world. And yet you've never actually really received the love of God. You've never come to that place where you can really allow that grace and that mercy to penetrate you. You're still doing it on your own strength. You're still doing it, you know, as a some sort of heroic action for God. You need to come to a place where you really genuinely allow yourself to be loved by God. Now, the way I often say this is, particularly in terms of understanding this compassionate heart of God, you need to bring to God the worst part of yourself. Okay, the most broken, shame filled part of who you are, the stuff that you don't even admit that you to yourself that you think about. Um, if you can bring that to God and say, you know what, God, this is me. You know, this is the stuff that I think about when I'm in my room at night by myself. Um, this is the stuff that, if I'm really honest, I actually enjoy this sin. Do you still love me? That would be my challenge to you. Can you sit before God in the chapel and say that? Because <laughs> you know, often we're still hiding from our sin. We come to God and we say, oh, Lord, save me. You know, give me the strength and I won't do it again. You know, um, But we're still not really being honest. <laughs> You know, we're still pretending. We're like the the little child who comes before their parents saying, oh, it was an accident. I won't do it again. No, of course you will. You enjoyed every moment of it. (laughs) Um, And I think this is the challenge. Like, can we actually come before a God and say, well, do you still love me even though I'm this bad? (laughs) You know, if I really stand in the real truth of who I am, do you still love me? And if you can, at that point, experience God saying, yeah, I do, and I want to help you. Um, that's, that's transformative. That, that's the point where that emptiness deep inside your heart starts to be filled. And, and, and I'd suggest, like, like, it sounds crazy. and You know, the idea of saying to God, this is my sin, I really enjoy it, do you still love me? Even, even in hearing that, I'm sure some of you are thinking that's reckless, like... That that's a recipe for disaster because you're just going to keep on sinning. It, it's very much like what we see in the Gospels, um, but I think what you actually find is that when you experience that love of God, the desire for the sin vanishes. It just dissolves instantly because what you're really looking for is God. You're not actually looking for the sin at all. Like, like what you're really, what your heart is really craving for is God. It, it's that mercy. It's that compassion. It's that that knowledge that you're just known and accepted. Um, That's what our heart's craving for. So in terms of being loved, that's that's where you've got to come to. You've got to come to a point where you are actually confident in the love of God. You're at peace with that. I I talk to so many Catholics who are extremely devout, um, and yet you get this impression that they're also extremely anxious, that there's this deep anxiety when it comes to their relationship with God. And so much of what we do is trying to prove ourselves to God. We're trying to do something to give myself an assurance that I'm okay. Whereas we actually need to come to a point where we're just comfortable, we're relaxed in that presence. But the way I describe this, like if you imagine a marriage, because I think this is probably the easiest analogy to work with, you know, you could, if we use you as an example again, <laughs> um, you get married, okay, and deep inside yourself there is this sense that you're just not quite secure in who you are. You know, you, probably like every other human being on this planet, have a certain level of self-hatred, um, self-loathing, and because you don't like yourself, you're not so sure that anyone else could like you either. And because you come into the marriage with that anxiety, everything you do is now trying to make sure that you're worthy of your wife's life, of, of your wife's love, OK? So you work tirelessly, OK? You do the washing, you clean the dishes, you mow the lawn, you you know, clean the cat, whatever. Like, you're, you are doing everything. You, like, outwardly, people would look at you and think, he is the best <coughs> husband in the world. OK, give that man an award. Um, But it's actually coming out of a deep anxiety. Like, at no point do you actually feel secure in that love. You're constantly trying to prove yourself to receive it. Now, it would be very different. Like, say if you entered into that marriage and you're able to come from a position of absolute weakness and you're able to almost just lay it all out on the table and say, this is me, I'm a broken, stinking mess. And your wife looks at you and just says, yeah, I know, but I love you, that's okay. You know, if you're able to come, starting from that point of compassion, the knowledge of that pure acceptance would make you unbelievably grateful. And out of that gratitude, you would want to do everything you could to make her life better. And so you would do the washing, do the dishes, clean the cat, you know, weigh the lawn. Like, it would would look exactly the same on the outside, but the motivation would be so different. Because the, in the first example, your whole focus is on yourself. Once again, it comes back to this thing of identity. Am I good enough? Am I valuable? How, what do I do to prove myself? Whereas in the second example, because it's coming out of a gratitude for mercy that's been received, the whole focus is on the other. How do I love you? How do I pour myself out for you? How do I say thank you? Okay, so... In terms of our relationship with God, it's exactly the same thing. There are so many people who, you know, they're praying 15 rosaries a day. They're going to mass every day. You know, they, they are doing charity work. They are like the, the greatest Catholic in the universe. And yet, fundamentally, deep at the core of their heart, they are not feeling, they're not feeling secure in God's love for them. You know, they're, they're, they're almost doing this to try to give themselves a sense of assurance that I'm Okay. And what that means is their whole focus is actually on themselves. You know, they're doing all this work for other people, but they're looking at themselves the whole time. We need to come to that place where we are so secure in God's love that it's just one giant thank you. <laughs> you know, all we're doing is just rejoicing in God. Um, and, and we just feel completely at peace and comfortable in that. Um, now, that's something you've really got to meditate on. You know, you, that, that's, that's not something you can just think about. You've, you've really got to examine yourself and say, well, where am I in that place? Have I really encountered that mercy and that grace? Now, the reason why that's so important is because once you have experienced being loved, then you can actually go and love. Once you've experienced <clears throat> that compassion, that grace, you will then become a minister of compassion and grace. This is what St. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, where he says, you know, you are ambassadors of mercy. You have been sent out as ambassadors because you have received it. You know, it's because you have received this merciful love, you're able to now go and represent this to the whole world. And so you are able to now go and bring that same compassion of God, that same mercy of God to everyone you meet. Only then do we actually become real Christians? If I can say it that way. Um, there are, the, the great stereotype of the Christian is the person who is very rigid and judgmental and quick to condemn. I'm sure you've come across that stereotype. Um, now, the reason we've got that label is because for far too long, we've been going out on mission to try and save the world without actually having allowed ourselves to receive that mercy ourselves. You know, so if if I'm still stuck in a place of self-condemnation and self-judgment, the only thing I can bring to the world is judgment and condemnation. But if I've received real grace and compassion, I've, I've been able to bring my absolute brokenness to God and be loved in that, then I can love other people in their brokenness. That's where the world is transformed. Okay, so you've got to to be loved and then become love. This quote, The Beauty Will Save the World, it it originally comes from a a novel by Dostoevsky called The Idiot. Um, And it's been quoted ever since. by Basically, one of these characters, I won't try to explain the novel because it's complicated. And like all Russian novels, it's very complicated. he, the, the, this guy is like the outcast. You know, he he's got nothing, nothing for him at all. Like, like he's no intellect, no gifting, nothing at all. And yet, somehow, in his simple way of in, encountering the world, he transforms people. Um. And and there's, there's this very small little bit of dialogue where he simply says, "You know, beauty will save the world." Now, this is taken up very much by the church, and um, I forget. His name. There was a cardinal a number of years ago who wrote a book about this. It was basically a whole meditation on on the cross, basically saying that the cross is the most beautiful thing in the world. Now, when you look at a crucifix, I'm not sure whether you think of it that way. You know, you see Jesus, you know, nailed to the cross, scourged, and it's probably not the natural thing to say that is beauty or that is the greatest beauty we've, we've ever seen. But really, I think what he was trying to get at is this fact that because this is the greatest example of love, this is the greatest example of compassion and mercy and grace, it actually is the beauty that our hearts are truly craving for. It is the greatest manifestation of beauty the world has ever known. Even though, for him, it is absolute ugliness. You know, it's it's absolute annihilation. But for us, it is the greatest thing ever. And really, this is what we're being invited into as Christians. Like, we, we are being invited to live a beautiful life. Now, that doesn't mean an Instagram life where, you know, every photo against a beautiful sunset. Um, it, it's not this manufactured, photoshopped existence which we're trying to create. It's, it's a truly beautiful life where it's about the other. It's not about me anymore. It's about having absolute commitment to love a person no matter what it costs. You know, and to just keep loving, keep loving, keep loving. And I think we always talk about Mother Teresa as being a great example of this, but there is something about Mother Teresa. When you even look, just look at a picture of her, she is beautiful. Do you find this like, you know, she's an old, wrinkled woman, and yet there is this radiance coming from her. Um, I think I mean that, that is a classic example of someone who has lived a truly beautiful life. It's not about her at all. It, it's purely about giving herself, pouring every last ounce of energy out for other people, loving people who persecute her and treated her badly and abused her for the work that she was doing, and she just loved them and loved them and loved them. This is our vocation. You know, like, like your vocation, by virtue of your baptism, is to say, well, how do I give everything? The goal of secularism is to find yourself. You know, like, like, they believe happiness is when I find myself and I have complete freedom and it's all about me. In the Second Vatican Council, in the document Gaudi Spes, it's got a famous line where it basically says that the human being can only find themselves by giving themselves away. Like it's only by making a genuine gift of yourself that you actually find yourself. And I think that's probably the best way to understand the difference between where we are and where the rest of the world is. There is a desire inside of you to actually find yourself. Like like you you, you want to know your identity. You wanna know who you are. But what Christ is saying to us is the only way you can find out who you are is by giving away everything. (laughs) And you gotta try and work out what that looks like in your own state of life. Um, I think what it really comes down to is your priorities. It comes down to your, des- your decisions. You know, at every moment you've got a decision, do I live for myself or do I live for the other person? Like, like pretty much every single moment is a life and death decision, if you're gonna if make it that extreme. <laughs> I'm either giving life to other people or I'm not giving life to them. <clears throat> You know, I'm either, I'm either living for you or I'm living for me. One is life, one is death. And it's the smallest little things. You know, it's like I can't be bothered getting up and putting that bit of rubbish in the bin. You know, that's, that's a death moment. That's, that's I'm living for myself, my own pleasure, my own comfort. You know, and, and the rest of the world is affected. Um, how do I start to train myself to become Love you know like if i if i start to set my absolute goal on this this moment like i i want to become the most loving person in the world i want to devote every bit of who i am to being given you you kind of need to then start a whole process of training yourself one of the things i find particularly in this modern world is Whenever people start to try to be charitable and loving, it doesn't take long before they suddenly pull back and say, oh, I'm not coping. I need more of my me time. Um, you know, I went and you know, committed myself to go and do this soup van on a Thursday night, and I did it once, but it was a little bit confronting, so I think I just need to take a month's break and just stay at home. Um, We've become a generation with absolutely no resilience at all. <laughs> Because everything has been about us, in a sense our hearts just don't have the strength for it. You know, it'd be like, you know, if you had someone who'd spend their whole life sitting on a couch and you asked them to go and run around the block, you know, they'd get five houses down and they'd be short of breath saying, oh, I need to go and take a break for the next month, I'll try it again and, you know. like, you, 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 we understand this in terms of physical fitness, that, that you actually need to train yourself. You've got to increase your capacity bit by bit by bit. Now, that's kind of where we find ourselves as a church, as, as a particularly you guys as a generation. You need to realise your capacity for love is really low. Um, you know, I'm not saying that in, in a harsh, judgmental way. I'm just saying that's kind of reality. It's the world you've grown up in. Um, This is why no one even bothers to get married anymore because they just can't handle being with someone for more than a year. Um, You need to actually set yourself almost like a sort of Catholic boot camp. Like, how do I start to train myself in my capacity to love so that my heart actually expands? Like, like I go from this tiny little heart this big to actually stretching my capacity, my desire. Um, And... and, and you know, set yourself a training program, you know, very, very much the same way you would with any other exercise. You know, in, in any sport you, you go out and you do hard work and then you come back and you rest, and then you go out and you do hard work and you come back and rest. You almost need to set yourself the same thing in terms of love. Um, I'm going to go and choose the hardest person I know. Okay? Find that person at university who annoys you completely and you say, I'm going to have lunch with them one day a week. <laughs> and it's going to drive you insane. But, but in a sense, you're actually training your capacity. You're stretching yourself in your ability to love this person. Only do it one day a week. And then the rest of the, day, rest of the week go back where you're comfortable. Um, now, that, that probably sounds ludicrous when you think of it. But this is actually very similar to what St. Therese L'Azure did. Uh, if you read the biography or the autobiography of St. Therese, She found it really hard to love her other sisters when she joined the Carmelites. She was 15 when she joined. Uh, She had lived a very sheltered existence at home where she was very much daddy's little girl and everything was done for her. And suddenly she was living with old ladies who, she she talks about one of the old nuns who would sit there in the chapel rattling her false teeth. And Teresa's like, you're driving me insane. (laughs) Um, one of the other sisters they'd, they'd, they'd be on their knees in the corridor scrubbing the floors and this sister would well, she believed would intentionally splash the bucket every time she put the rag back in the bucket so that Therese got splashed with water and Therese is like I hate you <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably I'm paraphrasing her but, but if you read between the lines you get this idea that okay this, she was struggling she was finding it so hard to find any love within herself And she actually talks about how she was wrestling with God about this, saying, how can I possibly love this woman? I I hate every part of who she is. And she finally gets to this point where she realizes the only thing I can possibly find worthy of love is the fact that Jesus lives inside of her. And I love him. (laughs) So every time she walks past this nun, she decides to smile at her But really, she's just saying, okay, I'm loving Christ inside of her. Now, what basically what Therese was doing, she was training herself. Like she set herself the end goal. She said, I want to become love. I want to become completely transformed into love. And I'm going to do it bit by bit, bit by bit. Okay. Now, eventually what happened was this this nun, who was a pretty cranky old woman, eventually she comes up to Therese and says, Why do you love me? She's saying, What do you mean? She says, well, every time you walk past me, you always smile so beautifully. No one else smiles at me. No one else talks at me. What is it about me that you see that is lovable? And Therese is suddenly caught. She's like, um, I see Christ in you. (laughs) As in, that's the only thing I can find. Um, But what happened was that this woman gradually started to change. Like, because Therese had made this small little effort to love her, gradually this woman was able to love herself. And her whole outward demeanour changed. You know, she actually became a nice person. Um, So once again, so Therese had made this heroic effort to love someone who was completely unlovable and had transformed her in the process. Now, that's, that's your vocation. That is the vocation of the Christian. Okay, before you start running great missions and conferences and everything like this, your, your mission in the world is a personal mission of changing hearts. Your job is to find the people who are the most broken, the most wounded, the most horrible and do whatever you can just to smile at them and love them and love them back into life okay because that's that's what God did to us you know if if I, if I can see how God has done that for me, I can then start to try and do the same thing for others you know and and gradually what you're doing is it's a little bit like softening the clay. <clears throat> you know, if, if you think of the human heart being made out of clay, if, if clay is, is heated or left in the sun, it gets rock hard and brittle and cracks. Um, if the human heart experiences abuse or violence or neglect, it becomes hard. But if you take a bit of clay and just put a little bit of water over it, it instantly becomes soft and malleable. And then someone can come and shape it into something beautiful. Really what our vocation is, is to simply take handfuls of love and pour it over people's hearts. And then let the re- leave the rest up to God. You know, he will shape them into something beautiful. But we need to be prepared to step into that same vocation that Christ had. You know, to be prepared to love even to the point where it hurts. To love even when it's going to cost us. You know, to really say, well, this is what the whole of my life is now about. That's it. At that point, beauty will save the world. That was Father Dave Callahan with Beauty Will Save the World. This talk was recorded as part of the UTS Catholic Society Beginning of Year Retreat. To find out more about the Catholic Society at your local university, visit unicatholics.org.au and for more talks, interviews, and shows, visit cradio.org.au.